man, if you weren't with us last week, it was, it was a kind of a unique week. We kind of got this uh, call last minute that our speaker wasn't able to be here, and we had to pivot like the night before. But man, God just, just absolutely met us here. And I just am so grateful. I just want to celebrate that with you. Just throughout this week, I've just heard of all these cool things that it was just God just answering decade-long prayers. Um, he spoke in still small voice to people. He ministered. He connected uh, spiritual parents with spiritual children. He just did so many cool things. And so I just want to testify to you that when you do what we just sang, when you make space for God, he will provide. He will help you in your living. He will support you. He will love you. And so we just felt, I think, collectively fathered by God last week, which is a real gift. And I just want to remind you, in, in, a, search, in a circumstance like that, where it was like, what do we do? Last minute decisions. What God is looking for is he is looking for two things in you and in me. He's looking for faith and he's looking for desperation. These are the two things that he's looking for. He's not looking for you to have your life figured out. He's not looking, looking for people who have all the answers. He's not looking for people who are good in their speech or, or gifted. He's looking for um, available people that are desperate. So it is good when you get to the end of yourself. It's good when your plans kind of run out of gas and you have to be desperate. You have to be dependent. That's the better place to be. It's countercultural. It's counterintuitive, but it is the better place to be. So I just want to invite you, as we look at our text this morning, that's where we're going. I'm encouraged by the hunger, the spiritual hunger of this church. Um, I'm also encouraged that you all are saints. And saints can always get something out of any circumstance and any sermon. And any teaching that I give is totally dependent on that. So I want to invite you to open up your word of God. We're going to be in Hebrews Chapter 12, we're going to get to finish it out. Hebrews chapter 12, and would you stand for the reading of God's word? Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to be in verses 18 through 29, and it'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have your copy of God's word. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose word, words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all into the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him 
who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So jump back in. This is, we're going to finish up chapter 12 in Hebrews as a reminder of what's happening here. The, the book of Hebrews is a letter or it's a, it's a pastoral sermon to a group of believers who are struggling, struggling uh, against cultural pressure, struggling against shame, struggling against persecution. And this powerful pastoral letter crescendos in chapter 12. It crescendos in chapter 12. And we see the, kind of the strongest warning, encouragement, exhortation yet in today's text. As we've said, Hebrews is an intense public pastoral counseling session. It's an intense public pastoral counseling session. He's dealt with uh, things like endurance, enduring to the end. Uh, He's said that we should trust and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. He's talked about God as a good father who disciplines his kids, who loves them so much that he cares for their living and disciplines them. So we've seen a lot of examples, really cool things. Lastly, just unity amongst one another as a key element to endurance, as a key element to living the Christian life. So like any good leader or pastor or coach, he, um, he wants his people to see the long game. That's what he's doing here. See the whole field. Get the big, get the big picture. That's what he's, he's trying to cast vision for. Our vision tends to be really small. It shrinks. It doesn't default into expansion, but it shrinks. Our imaginations tend to be too weak. Other than the scriptures, C.S. Lewis has been one of the men who his writings have just expanded my imagination for what it looks like to follow Jesus, what it looks like to encounter God. And uh, I want to share with you, this is a a well-known example, but this is an example from Mere Christianity and how he does this. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you are not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. Could this be the discipline of the Lord? We talked about that in Hebrews chapter 12 already. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. I love that picture. I've read that several times. And every time I read it, it just just expands my imagination for what God, what, what's possible when we trust God. So my prayer then for us this morning 
is that the Holy Spirit does this in our hearts, that he expands and enlarges our imaginations of what it means to know and be near God, for what it means to encounter God, what it means to actually have an actual encounter with God. You see, God's people um, haven't always been able to approach God the way we can now, haven't always been able to boldly approach the throne of grace as we can now under Christ. So the teaching this morning, I've entitled it this, in the spirit of C.S. Lewis, A Tale of Two Mountains and an Unshakable Kingdom. A Tale of Two Mountains. That, sounds, that should be like a C.S. Lewis book, I feel like. A Tale of Two Mountains and an Unshakable Kingdom. So our text today can be broken down into two components. One, this tale of two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And then secondly, this warning and encouragement of an unshakable kingdom. And we'll see, in light of these things, I think we'll see that because of Jesus, we can, we can now live in an unshakable kingdom, his kingdom, and that our citizenship is our new and everlasting identity. We can live in the kingdom now and that our citizenship there is our new identity for today and eternally. So in our tale of of two mountains, we begin at Mount Sinai. And you can keep your word open, but in verse 18 through 22, our author reminds us of the terrifying presence of God in the days of old. He's reminding his people, lest they forget and think of him as, as the big guy upstairs or the old man in the sky or maybe just tempted to project onto him human characteristics or human behaviors, God is altogether other. He's altogether holy. He's completely different. He's unfathomably powerful. He's perfect. And when you encounter that kind of being, it's terrifying. It's terrifying. So he's reminding his people. In the first five verses here, he's recounting the Old Testament story of God's people at the base of Mount Sinai, where God is giving him, giving Moses and them his law, establishing his continued covenant with his people. And we know this as the old covenant. This is the continuation and, and, and continual establishment of the old covenant. Our author is reminding the people not just of the facts of the story, but the tone of that day, the nature of that encounter with Yahweh. It hadn't always been very pleasant to be near God as sinners. Here, the presence of God is described as what? Something that can't be touched. A blazing fire, a darkness, a gloom, a hurricane, a tempest, even a trumpet blast like the sound sound of a war horn or the, the coming of a terrifying king or army. One that the hearers begged to stop, begged not to hear. This is Exodus 20 here, and, he's, and it's really just quoting. They, this is the people of God talking to Moses, and they said, Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but don't let God speak directly to us, or we will die. This is the sentiment of most all who encounter God as sinners. You're shaken. Shaken to the core. It's shattering. Every time the presence of God 
came to a place is fatal to draw near. This is intense. It's fatal to draw near that kind of presence, this kind of pure and awesome God. Why is that? Why, why, why is this happening? I, I believe it's, it's, it's the same reason we love in every movie or in every book that we read where, the, where the, the bully or the antagonist meets the power of the hero of the story. Up until that moment in the story, it seems like the antagonist has the upper hand, right? Kind of walking in arrogant confidence that he or she has life figured out. Their identity secure and being in control of everything and everyone. They're domineering, toxic. But then they get into the presence of a greater power, a stronger being, a pure archetype, the superhero. And they fall apart. They're ter- you know the scene, right? It's happened in a million times in a million stories. They scamper off terrified. They're shaken. They're shattered. They're utterly defeated. And this is the picture of us encountering God. This is why that resonates. This is the picture of us encountering God the way that we are. Because of pride. Because of sin. We spend our lives spinning narratives and identities that make us feel strong and that make us feel secure, in control. And we insulate those narratives by surrounding ourselves with people on the same selfish journey. This is how we tend to live our lives. And we'll, we'll do things like, we'll admit that we're not perfect, right? But how do you use self-talk? How do you self-love? <laughs> you say, you know, I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. We're pretty good people, pretty good family. We've done well. We've worked hard for what we have. We're pretty wholesome, moral. Not perfect, but certainly not as bad as this guy. We perform well under pressure. You know, we're all right. We're going in the right direction for sure. But when we get into the presence of God, when you encounter the perfect, holy, righteous God, your whole view of yourself falls apart. Has anyone experienced this? When you just get around the presence of God, the the only thing that can come out of your mouth is repentance. Your whole worldview falls apart. Your whole approach to life falls apart. You're all of a sudden totally aware of all the lies that you've been living in. You're undone. Your true wicked identity is revealed. You're shattered. In the Bible, anyone who encounters or gets near God or even an angel of the Lord, utterly falls apart. Utterly falls apart. Job has an encounter with God and he says, I despise myself and I cast myself down into the dust and in the ashes. Peter says, leave me, Lord. Depart from me for I am a sinful man. The Roman guards encounter an angel, just an angel at Jesus' tomb. And it says they were so fearful that they, they fell down. They fell face down and they were like dead men. Isaiah, in this famous picture where he gets a picture of God and of heaven. What does he say? Oh, how nice it is, God, to be in your presence. No, he says, woe is me. I am lost I'm unclean, I come from a people that are unclean, and he falls down. This is his response to just having this vision of God. Woe is me, I'm, I'm lost, I'm unclean. 
I'm, my life is gross. I'm, I'm, I'm wicked. I'm sinful. In our text today, Moses trembled with fear, shaking with fear, as only happens in a near-death experience. You see, in the presence of God, we finally see ourselves accurately. We finally see ourselves accurately, and we're completely shaken by it. Our denial runs out, our justification runs out, and we see our sin And we can no longer lie to ourselves about who we are. Our actions are uncovered. Our thoughts are uncovered. Our motives are uncovered. The Bible says even our greatest, most noble qualities are still just filthy rags to God's presence. The old Puritan prayer takes it further. The Puritan preacher says, I must repent of my repentance. Even my tears of sorrow need to be cleansed, need to be washed. He's basically saying, even when I'm trying to be holy and righteous and pure, I'm still totally wicked. Is this offensive to anybody? This is a little offensive to me. And this this should offend us because the gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive in that it communicates that you're way worse than you thought you were. You're, you're way more wicked, you're way more sinful, you're way more evil than you ever imagined you were. But it comforts us in saying that God is way more gracious, way more merciful, way more loving, way more compassionate than you could ever imagine. And that's the beauty of the gospel. But that's also the offense of the gospel. So in our tale of two mountains, the author articulates That's what Sinai was. That's what was. But you don't come to that mountain. Praise be to God, right? You don't come to that mountain. You come to Mount Zion. You come to the new covenant mediated by Jesus himself. That's the gospel. The new covenant. We're saved by Christ. So remember his audience here, they're, um, they're Jews that have come out of Judaism and they've begun to follow uh, Jesus as the Messiah. So there's this sense in which when he says, you have come, that he's saying to them, you have come and you have left Sinai. You've left it in the past. You've left Judaism. You've let him, as we sang, get rid of religion. Get rid of tradition that's dead and dying. And you've now come to Zion. You've now come to Christianity. You've now come to God himself. And he's saying, remember that. Remember that. You come to the city of the living God. A city full of pardon. A city full of peace. It's a city full of promise. And excuse the alliteration, but it is a city... That is partying. It's a city that is having one giant party. Verse 22 says this. Come to a place where there is innumerable angels in festal gathering. As far as the eye can see, angels, creation, celebrating and worshiping in God's presence. It's pretty amazing. 
So historically and geographically, Mount Zion was the place where David and his son Solomon stored the Ark of the Covenant. This was where God's presence resided and was the meeting place between God and his people. This Zion that that we see in here today, this is talking about a heavenly place, a heavenly Jerusalem. It's representative of an eternal dwelling with God and with man. It's Revelation 21. So grab your, your word and let's just see what this new heaven and new earth might look like. Revelation 21, almost the very last page of your Bible. 21, 1 through 4, maybe 5 here. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, Zion, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And then verse five says this, and he who is seated on the throne and Jesus says, behold, I am making all things new. So here Jesus is king and, and we get to live in the complete fulfillment of the new covenant established by his perfect blood. It's blood that speaks a better word than Abel. We see this in verse 24. You remember chapter 11? This is that cloud of, that great cloud of witnesses. Abel was the first name mentioned. He was the first name mentioned on a long list of martyrs that died for the truth. And that truth is this, that God accepts men and women according to their faith. Their faith in what? Him, namely Jesus. So when Jesus' truly innocent blood was spilled, we can now in faith, we can now in faith worship him as the object of our faith and walk with him. This is how we have relationship with God Today and forever. Today and forever. So our author sets these two mountains kind of side by side so that we can continue to see what? What's our theme? Jesus is better. He's still saying the same thing. These two mountains, see how Jesus is better. See how Jesus being Zion, bringing Zion to fruition. He's better. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. Don't revert back to your old ways. Don't revert back to to religion. Don't revert back to Judaism. It's dead. But what is alive is this new kingdom. Jesus is better. The new covenant is better. In which Christ is their mediator. So the second part of this text is verse 25 and 27 here. He issues, our author issues this final warning. And basically he says this, don't refuse him who is speaking to you. Hear the voice of God. Don't you want to hear God's voice? It's the most true thing you could possibly hear. Hear God's voice. It reminds me of Isaiah 55. And and we even sang some of it, the psalm references. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. 
Come by wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, that which doesn't sustain you? You're lab- and you labor for that which does not satisfy. He's saying, why do you look to the temporal things for wisdom and provision? And then verse 6 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. So this indicates that there's going to there's be a time in which he is not available to you. He cannot be found by you. And he is not near. Seek him now. The warning is here. Seek him now. Don't refuse him now. Listen to his voice. Why is he saying this? Verse 23 calls God the judge of all. It seems a little out of place. This, this is a celebratory scene. Uh, it seems a strange thing to say God the judge in the middle of all that. Kind of a sobering name for God, title for God. But he's setting us up. He's setting the listener up to what he's about to quote. He's about to quote the book of Haggai in verse 26 here. And he, and he does, and he says, Yet once more... I will shake the earth and the heavens. Yet once more, I will shake the earth and the heavens. This is pointing to a final judgment. The final judgment prophesied in Haggai, where God will shake both the heavens and the earth, so that what remains is only that which is eternal. So our author is using this um, uh, apocalyptic rhetoric. Right? He's stirring a sense of urgency. He's trying to emphasize this is so important. This, is, this shaking is God's judgment. And this is really what this passage is getting us to. You know why Isaiah was so shaken? Because he felt judged. His life was in the moment like that, just judged. And he all of a sudden knew who he was, saw who he was, and had to be cleansed had to be saved. Um, If you've ever, this idea of shaking, if you've ever uh, built anything with wood, if you've ever built a chair or a table or a desk or a shed, what's the first thing you do when you're you're done? You kind of grab it and you're like, right? You give it a shake. Is this thing going to last? Is this thing going to hold up? Right? It's kind of what we do when we want to figure out what is going to remain, what's going to be strong. Another example is, Maybe uh, if you've packed a trailer or you've packed the back of a truck, that tie down, what do you do? It's a law of nature. You grab it, shake it, and say, that ain't going nowhere. (laughs) It's a law of nature. I've never seen someone just walk away from a trailer and not say anything. They have to come back and go, yeah, that's not going anywhere. Just arrogance, you know, mattress on top. Not going anywhere. But we shake it. We, we, we figure out, is this going to last? Is this going somewhere? And that's the shaking that's taking place here. The shaking of the earth to expose what's eternal. To expose what's temporal. To expose what will last. What will remain. It's sobering. It's this idea that God the judge will one day end the world as we know it. And heaven and earth will want to flee from this consuming fire. 
It's the name given to God at the end of this chapter. For he is a consuming fire. And heaven and earth will want to flee under the weight of his glory. It will be Sinai all over again, but much worse. Eternally shattering. Eternally shaking. Who will remain? That's our question this morning. Who will remain? Only those who follow and serve King Jesus. Only those who follow and serve King Jesus. Because those who are in Christ are what? They're citizens of a different kingdom. They're citizens of the unshakable kingdom. And this is our author's final exhortation, encouragement to us, to his listeners. Verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful. For, for we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We don't have to be afraid of God the way we used to be. That even when God comes to judge the earth, we are eternally declared not guilty, righteous, holy. You are who will remain because you're a citizen of heaven. And this is what we celebrate. This is what we're celebrating this morning. This is what we rejoice in. We're given a new citizenship to the new and better country. Ultimately, where we we source all of our identity, all of our understanding of who we are. I am a citizen of heaven, a son and daughter of Zion. In the New Testament, Jesus sends out his disciples uh, as witnesses. He sends out this group of 72 people And they go out and they minister and miracles are happening. And they come back to Jesus after they've ministered in these different places and these different cities and these different lands and towns and villages. And you can just see the scene. They're like high-fiving each other. They're like, did you see that? And did you see that? And man, this happened and that happened. And, And they come to Jesus and they say, Lord, even the demons were subject to us in your name. We just killed it out there. It's awesome. And Jesus says this, do not rejoice in this, that the the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. So Jesus gets really serious with his disciples as they celebrate something like this. And he says, don't find your joy in what you accomplish or what you can achieve. Don't get a sense that you're somebody from what you can do because of those things. That's a dead end. That's a dead end. We do this all the time, though. We do this all the time. We rejoice in, we celebrate, we find our identity in the house, the job, the car, the wife, the husband, the kids, the clout, the power, the influence, the vacations, our beauty, the ministry, the intellect, the degree. the cause to fight for, the salary I've worked hard for. We say, now I'm somebody. I sold the business. Now I'm somebody. Now I have value. And Jesus is saying, don't build your identity on any of those things. All of those things can go away in a moment. And then what do you have? Rejoice rather 
that your identity is in your homeland. Your identity is written in the Lamb's book of life. Your name is there, secure forever, now and forever. Heaven. I think as believers, we can acknowledge when we log online, when we get on social media, when we watch movies, get on Netflix, look at the world, the news, that this isn't our home. It's not how it should be. It's not how it should be. I want to celebrate this, this week the, the ruling of Roe v. Wade. It's really a, a gift to us. Long time prayers have been answered in this historic decision. Countless lives have already been saved. Countless lives will be saved. So I just want to celebrate that. I'm, I'm personally thankful for those who are on the front lines, um, not only in, in prayer and intercession, but in helping serve women and children in these crisis moments, meeting tangible needs in the most daunting of circumstances. It's powerful. So as Christians, I believe we have an obligation to do that, an obligation to serve those in our community who are walking through these things. I also believe, though, that we have an obligation to not find our identity in causes, no matter how righteous the cause. So I can celebrate that, but can, I, can we just talk about how do we respond to something like that? As believers, as Christians, how do we talk about, how do we think about, how do we respond to something like this last week in this cultural moment? There's so many things going on. So many things pulling and vying for our attention, our worship. If, if we find identity in causes, even if they're the most righteous cause, what we will tend to do is we'll begin to objectify and vilify people who disagree with us. We'll say they're in the way. And we'll lose sight of the commandment that says love others, including your enemies, as yourself. What an insane thing. So as Christians, you don't, I don't, we don't wield social media, we don't wield rhetoric that dances on or shouts over those who disagree. Instead, instead, this is better, we're invited to announce the kingdom of God. Announce the kingdom of God by embodying Christ's posture and character in our living. You can stand for justice without standing on other people. There's a, there's a chapter that I'm reminded of as I was thinking about this, this morning. Chapter 12 in Romans. And I'll just, I'll turn there. The title of the, 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 this, this section of scripture is Marks of a True Christian. Uh, Marks of a Real Christian. I feel like when the Bible says that, we should probably look at it. It says this, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. You can abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That's us here in this room, and that's outside of this room. We outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. 
Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. It doesn't say, there's no caveat that says, weep with people that are only weeping about something that's justifiable or that's true. It doesn't give that caveat. I wish it did, but it doesn't. It makes it even more difficult to to sit with someone like that. Maybe that you absolutely disagree with. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And then verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So we announce the kingdom of God by embodying Christ's posture. We announce the kingdom of God by living peaceably and compassionately with others in an argumentative and polarizing culture. And that is our culture. We, we only know how to communicate through argument. It's, in, it's, it's horrible. It's not, a, it's not an atmosphere of Christian love. And so we get to announce the kingdom in a different way. We don't have the pressure of building the kingdom, right? Jesus says, I will build my church. But we do get the invitation to announce the kingdom. There's a lot of freedom in that, that we get to announce the kingdom. So a Christian doesn't win. A Christian woos. A Christian invites. We announce the unshakable kingdom by having Christian courage and not living in fear. Fear demands that we fight or flee. Kind of gives us those options. But Christian courage reminds us that Jesus protects us and is in control of everything. And this releases us to sacrificially love one another, including those who oppose us, or maybe even those that are hostile towards us. So you can hold strong convictions. There's nothing wrong with that, while, while also being gentle and relational to those that God has put you around. It's good news. God doesn't, he doesn't say, man, I'm looking for some bulldogs out there. He invites us into gentle work, gentle invitation towards others. So it's good and right to find righteous causes and Jesus stands for the, those that are oppressed and those that are wrongfully accused and those that are in some sort of situation that's unjust. It is right, but it's just a bad identity. So Jesus has this in mind when he says, casting out demons? I mean, he calls his disciples to do that. But he says, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice rather that your, your, your name is in heaven. That's your identity. So it frees us from having to find identity and causes, which is so tempting for us as believers. It's tempting for me. Some soapbox, something that's, that's genuinely important, but not where my identity should be found. So where do we get our identity? Where do we get our identity? One that's unshakable. You receive it. That's the good news of the gospel. You receive it as a gift. Our text calls us this morning, uh, one of the, the names of this gathering as the assembly of the firstborn. Being firstborn in this culture meant that you were to inherit uh, everything. It was the way families preserved their, their standing in society, not dividing up their wealth between their children. So if you were firstborn, 
It wasn't that you were really working hard or inventing something or saving money. In essence, you were born rich. You were born secure. And this is how we get to see ourselves in Christ. Firstborn. In him, it's possible to have an unshakable identity. In Christ, God gives us a whole new identity structure. Your inheritance is guaranteed. You are absolutely accepted by God. Good news, right? You're absolutely accepted. It's unshakable. It's irreversible. So I have to ask this question, and this is where we'll end. But how are you finding your identity now? Who are you? Who are you? I want to steal something from Tim Keller. He says this about just, we're confused. (laughs) Our identities are real messed up, even in the church. And he says this. He says, on this confusion, you are the accumulation. This is how we tend to find our identity. You're the accumulation of what everybody has always said about you. Everything they've said. Your father, your mother, your teachers, your coaches, your friends, your siblings, your coworkers, your spouse, your bosses, your employees. Everything ever said about you. Everything ever said to you. It's how you define yourself. And many of those things you want to be true. And many of those things you don't want to be true, but you're afraid they are. And it's so conflicting. It's confusing. It's shakable. But this is what I think God's word is for us this morning. And as I've worked through this text, this is what I feel like his word is for me, for us as a people, that God wants to break through those lies, those labels, those identities. And he wants to establish something in you that's unshakable. God's God has the power to overturn the accumulated verdicts that have been placed on you. God has the power to overturn the accumulated verdicts that have been placed upon you. He wants to give you an unshakable identity. So I want to put this question up, and I want us to sit in this. Maybe you close your eyes, but we're just going to pray that the Holy Spirit helps us in this. And this is what we're going to pray that he reveals to us. What are some of the accumulated verdicts that need to be overturned in your life? So this is gonna be how we end. I want us to just look at this, pray this. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to me some of these accumulated verdicts that have defined me, that have, have given me an identity? And then would you set me free from those things? You see, there was another Sinai that our scriptures talk about. On the night Jesus was crucified, it says the earth shook. The sky darkened, a tempest, a gloom. Graves opened up. The veil was torn, and all who were there were terrified. The Roman guard said, surely that is God. Shaking. Jesus was shaken that day so that we 
can live in his unshakable kingdom. He was sifted. He was shattered so that we might be whole. He was wounded so that we might be healed. Father, I ask that this is what compels us to live and take advantage of every heartbeat and every breath. That you yourself came to us in Jesus and said, I'll be shaken so that you can be steady and unshakable so that you might remain. You offered your life in place of ours. So God, may that fuel every single thing that we do. May we move away from dead religion. May we move away from Sinai and come to Mount Zion and be free. Walk in freedom. God, I pray that you would just seal what you're doing. And this week we would be just intoxicated by you and your presence and that we would revel in the fact that we get to just boldly come to you. And from our beds and in our cars and in our walking around and our doing the dishes and our changing the diapers and our doing all the things that we do, we can just call out to, to you and say, God, I need you. I long for your presence. I need your voice. Would you speak? And you, in your word, and in these moments of prayer, you speak gently to us and tenderly. And you remind us that we are citizens of heaven in an unshakable kingdom that will remain forever. May we find our identity there totally and completely. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said...